0: Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at wildheartnashville or you can make a donation through our website wildheartmeditationcenter.org by clicking the donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. So I think we'll go ahead and jump into the topic today. It's a big one. Uh, I'm going to be speaking on the fourth noble truth which is actually the eightfold path. So it's the end of a list and the beginning of another one. <laughs> Which uh, in our tradition of Buddhism, they call us list worshippers sometimes because this is how the, the teachings of the Buddha were passed down orally for 400 years before they were written was through the recitation of lists so people could remember them. And um, I like to joke around and say like if there was a a website for Buddhism, for all of Buddhism, it was just like buddhism.com, right? You would go to the website, probably have like an image of like a lotus flower or like some serene, you know, like pond or something on the front of it. But the navigation bar at the top, you know what that is? Like usually it'll have four, five, six different things you can click on on the homepage. It would have the Four Noble Truths. That's what would be on the homepage. page all of the buddhist teaching really in any tradition whether it's theravada buddhism mahayana buddhism vajrayana buddhism you don't need to know what these things are but basically what i'm saying is it's central to all schools of buddhism four noble truths so that would be on the home page and then as you you know you could click on the first noble truth and learn a little bit about it you could click on the second you could click on the third but if you clicked on the fourth a drop down menu would come down <laughs> And that drop-down menu would be eight things. It would be the 8 path. And then you could click on each part of the 8 full path, and you would get so many more drop-down menus, right? And so that's kind of where we're at in, uh, in the scheme of things. And just to provide a little bit of context for people that are maybe new, uh, my friend and I, Rachel Tanner-Smith, she teaches the alternating Sundays here And we've been giving a series of talks on these core teachings, on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And we're eight weeks in. Today is uh, week eight, and we're wrapping up the Four Truths, and we're moving into the Eightfold Path. Um, And so I want to talk a little bit about what's the, maybe what's the purpose or what's the importance of talking about the Eightfold Path before I go into it. So what we're really interested in, I've even heard it said that there's a sutta that's referenced to sometimes where the Buddha says, I only really teach one thing, suffering in the end. And you could say that's two things. Um, But all of the Buddha's teachings could really be constellated around or focused on how we can get to know suffering the human experience, what's painful, what's stressful, what's difficult, what's vulnerable about being human, and to uh, find a way through the Eightfold Path to free ourselves from the unnecessary suffering that really the mind creates. And so the purpose of studying and learning about the Eightfold Path is to find a way to free ourselves from suffering, unnecessary suffering. Bhikkhu Bodhi says that liberation, freedom, is the inevitable fruit of the path. And it's bound to blossom forth when there's steady and persistent practice. He says the only requisites for reaching the final goal, which is freedom, are two. We must start and we must continue if these requirements these two requirements are met, there's no doubt the goal freedom will be attained. So I love the bar that Biku Bodhi sets here, our job is just to start start walking the path and just keep going and I really believe, and I think you know the the Dalai Lama even in his uh, His teaching to the public, he says something along the lines of when they ask about his religion, he says, my religion is love, right? My religion is kindness. Um, Is that we've all been walking a path, whether you're Buddhist or not, whether you're atheist, agnostic, we're all walking through the human experience. I think a lot of things are very universal about our path. And I hope, my hope, is that through the Buddhist teachings, It illuminates your own wisdom your own experience not the other way around which is tricky sometimes for Westerners when we've grown up in maybe religious communities that felt very belief centric or kind of rule centered Um, but in my experience the Dharma is very empowering even the Buddha's dying words were they asked him if he was going to name a predecessor and he said no my teachings the dharma and your own heart and mind will be your teacher after my death and he literally says be an island unto yourself seeking no external refuge and this is both really empowering but also a great responsibility uh, and i think that this is a really you know tricky thing the buddha did here because he said if he says you know it's you it's both really empowering and also like it's up to you you know and uh, we have to walk the path if we want more ease more peace more freedom Um, not this path necessarily but whatever path we walk whatever we do whatever we practice we get better at you know what i mean and so the buddha encourages us to practice around these eight things and that's what i wanted to talk about today So Bhikkhu Bodhi says, all you need to do is start and continue. But Joseph Goldstein, when I heard him give a talk, and this is where I first heard this quote, he said, well, it's helpful to know that you're going in the right direction, too. (laughs) That's maybe why we have Buddhism, right? Uh, We all have our own wisdom. We all kind of have a sense of things that work and don't work in our lives. But it does help to have a little bit of structure, a little bit of a map. Now, you don't go on a hike to just look at the map the whole time. Yeah, so you walk through your life, but you use the map as a guide. And if you have it, it can help you. Right? If you throw the map away, you, you might get lost. If you are too obsessed with the map, you're not going to enjoy your, your walk. So we have to hold the Dharma loosely like that as a guide. And the two things I want to focus on today is I want to talk briefly in terms of the Noble Eightfold Path about where the path leads us. You know, what awakening is, what freedom is, freedom from suffering is, what that means, and, and how the path leads us there. And then I also want to, as much as I can, we'll see how, what I can get to today, give a brief overview of the Eightfold Path as well. Does that sound good? All right, buckle your seatbelts here. We'll go. So where does the path lead? The Buddha talks about this, about awakening, about the freedom from suffering. He talks about the fruition of spiritual practice actually quite a bit. Um, but he never does this in terms of like attainment. He never says, like, actually tried once when he first got enlightened, quote unquote, Uh, Basically, someone came up to him and they're like, you're really radiant and you look like a cool, vibey dude. What's your secret? And he's like, well, I'm enlightened. I just got enlightened. And then the person, of course, just kept going. Right. And so he realized talking about, you know, the benefits of spiritual practice in terms of like how great you are and how much you've attained is not a great way to start. And so he started talking about awakening a lot in terms of of metaphors. He uses a lot of metaphors. And I just want to share a couple of these with you. So this is where the path goes. And the first metaphor I want to share, I actually want to share the original sutta. It's called the city. And he says, suppose, monks, a person wandering through a forest would see an ancient path, an ancient road traveled upon by people in the past. They would follow it and would see an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past, with parks, groves, ponds, ramparts, a delightful place. Then that person would inform their king or royal minister, Sire, know that while wandering through the forest, I saw an ancient path and an ancient road traveled upon by people in the past. I followed it, and I saw an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past, with parks, groves, ponds, and ramparts, a delightful place. And then he would say to the king, Renovate that city, sir. Make it inhabitable. Then the king or royal minister would renovate the city. And sometime later, that city would become successful and prosperous, well-populated, filled with people, attain to growth and expansion. And then the Buddha says, after he tells this story, he says, So too, monks, I saw an ancient path, the ancient road traveled by the fully awake ones of the past. And what is that ancient path and that ancient road? It is just this noble eightfold path. That is, wise view, wise thought or intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. I followed that path, and by doing so, I have directly known aging and death, the arising and passing and the way, as well as the condition arising of aging and death. Having directly known them, I've explained them to monks and nuns and lay followers. This good life, monks, has become successful and prosperous, extended, popular, widespread, well-proclaimed amongst devas and humans. So What this sutta tells me is really actually two things, and these are the two things I want to talk about here in terms of where the path leads. The sutta tells me one is that awakening is like the excavation of an ancient city. It's like the uncovering or unearthing of something that's already there. And when the Buddha talks about awakening, he doesn't talk about it as this sudden, direct experience into some final knowledge and some intellectual knowledge. He actually talks about it as a gradual progression, like you might walk into the ocean, a step-by-step letting the water come over your feet. It's a gradual path. And he talks about where it leads is it leads us to uncover a heart and a mind that's already free. That's just been covered up by what are called nawarana, which literally means coverings. The coverings of reactivity. The coverings of of craving and attachment. Sometimes we might call it greediness. Greediness. The coverings of of self centeredness, the coverings of self hatred, self criticism, aversion, the coverings of delusion or sense of separateness from others. He says, underneath all of this stuff that happened before the world got its hands on you, there was already something that was naturally radiant. In some traditions, they call this Buddha nature. So what we're not doing is becoming something that we are not. We're uncovering all of those stories that tell us we're not that. And we do that through mindfulness. We do that through investigation. Investigation of reactivity. And I talked about this a uh, few weeks ago, about how the term for awakening in Buddhism is Nibbana. We may have heard the Sanskrit word nirvana, which means, literally, it means taking a pot of boiling water off a fire. So it was a cooking term. It would have been on the great Buddhist bake-off 2,600 years ago. And they would have taken the, the kettle off the fire and called that nibbana or nirvana. So that's kind of what we're trying to get. And what is that? It's cooling down. It's the cooling down of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so this practice, this process is is an uncovering. And another interesting part of this metaphor here is that uh, the Buddha talks about making this ancient city inhabitable. He doesn't talk about dominating the wilderness. He talks about living side by side with it. And Wendell Berry says this in one of his essays. He actually is talking about marriage in this essay. But he says, one does not care for this ground to make it a different place or to make it perfect, but to make it inhabitable, some place where we can live together. So the key to the Buddhist teaching is an emphasis on investigation, seeing clearly and responding wisely. And we could say that really all of the Noble Eightfold Path, some of you may have heard this term middle path, is about finding or striking a balance with wisdom and compassion. And this is, as active words, this is the practice of seeing clearly, of looking into our own hearts and our minds, to uncovering what what those patterns, those stories, uh, the mental suffering that we experience, uncovering underneath all of that, a heart that is already radiant. Living with an undefended heart. So I think about the middle path um, as I think of it in two ways. One is I think that it puts us in the middle of our lives. It's not something to follow linearly, which we'll get to in a moment, like I do this step and then I do this step and then I do this step. It's actually something that helps to always bring us back to the immediacy of the here and now. You know, waking up to what is. Have you ever noticed that you're always in the middle of something? And this is one of the great insights in Buddhism is that it's never, it's never not the middle of something. And it's never not the beginning of something and it's never not the end of something. And the mind, the kind of trick of the mind is that once I just do this next thing, then this thing will be over and I can finally get onto the thing that I want to be doing. And then that never comes. And so the Buddha's teaching, the noble Eightfold path, always has to be interested in whatever we're going through and whatever we're experiencing and whatever moment we're in. And the Buddha calls this the clear and visible dharma. He says that it's immediate. He says it's sensed by the wise. That it takes real patience and real mindfulness and real investigation to try to come into the moment and ask ourselves, what is it like here? How is it? And what does it need? What's the skillful or appropriate response? What's the skillful or wise way of being or showing up in the moment? And we don't always know the right answer, but we try. And we try, and we try, and we learn, and we try, and we learn through trying, not by being perfect, but by being intentional and present. So I think of the middle path as that. I think about it always putting us in the middle of our lives. And I think about the middle path also as balance, or in in these rooms we call it equanimity. The Buddha said that the middle path is between two extremes. And there's the extreme of always getting pulled into the emotional reactivity of our experience or the opposite, tending to withdraw from life to try to get out of experience. And the Buddha was really, he learned this the hard way through his own life, is that neither one works. He calls them both dead ends trying to rearrange the furniture on the Titanic of our emotional preferences and expectations for how we need the world to be, never works. Right? It doesn't mean that we also just try to go down with the ship and say, well, if the Buddha's saying, which is a misinterpretation, that life is suffering, which he's not saying, then I'm just going to disengage and non-attach from everything. But then we read about the Buddha and his story, and he says, that's not what I'm saying at all. This practice is engaged, but with an open heart. You know, actually sensing into and feeling into the full breadth of the 10,000 joys and sorrows that we experience, being here for it and trying to navigate it skillfully, courageously, compassionately. So as we transition into an overview of the Eightfold Path, a brief overview of it, I want to talk about how balance is incorporated into it. And the first thing I'll do is just kind of direct your attention up to this wheel. When we talk about the Eightfold Path, the symbolic representation in Buddhism is often of a wheel. They call it the Dharma Wheel. And I want to read a little bit of what Bhikkhu Bodhi says about how we balance or how we should maybe think about the Noble Eightfold Path. He says, These eight factors of the path are not steps to be followed in sequence, one after another. They can be more aptly described as components rather than as steps, comparable to the intertwining strands of a single cable that requires the contributions of all the strands for maximum strength. With a certain degree of progress, all eight factors can be present simultaneously, each supporting the others. So we can think of the Eightfold Path as a coming together. And that being said, he said there is some degree of a progression because the first path factor is wise view. And when we think of wise view, we think of there's something that brought us all in this room. Right. Like, what is it that interests us in spirituality or Buddhism, even if it was just a, a moment impulse? I'm oh, sure hell, Why not? I'll go to the Buddhist group this morning and see what it's about. Right. There's some type of view there. There's some type of curiosity. There's some type of seeking. And for a lot of people, not all, but that seeking is kind of born out of an awareness of some type of disease, right? That the world, the material world, can't really provide our happiness, right? And we know that intellectually, but we also know that experientially. And so there's this view. There's this view that this world, this physical world, and these, even these relationships, even though people are wonderful and great and they're a huge part of the path, But I can't derive my happiness from these people, places and things. So there's some basic view that kind of gets us into spiritual practice. And over time, we move our way through, not in step fashion, but through these factors of the path about then we may have an intention, an intention to go every week. Or an intention to meditate, or an intention to read, or an intention to learn, or an intention that I want to be a kinder person, or a more generous person, or a more compassionate person. The intention can take on a myriad of different forms, but something that holds our commitment. And then we take action. You know, we watch our speech, and we watch how we interact, and we watch, we even start thinking about what we do how we make money and where we spend most of our time. We start kind of thinking of these things in terms of what promotes our welfare and happiness and the welfare and happiness of others because the spiritual practice starts to take hold and we want to organize our life around it to some degree. And then as we start to do that, not then in order, but as we start to do that, we also want to investigate the mind. Because, you know, before we get to the level of speech or before we get to the level of our behavior, our communications, our interactions, our relationship to work and money and sex and all these things, there are our thoughts. So then we look a little bit deeper behind the curtain and we start to see the nature of the mind through effort, through mindfulness, through concentration. And as we do all of these things holistically and together, interestingly, our wisdom, our experiential wisdom, through being curious, through investigating these areas of our lives, it starts to kind of get clarified. We start to, you know, uh, know thyself, if you will. Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living. We start to examine and we start to learn. We learn about our conditioning and we learn about the patterns and we start to be less reactive and we start to experience what the Buddha calls the joy of the Dharma. And we don't have to wait for five years, 10 years, 20 years to experience the joy because the Buddha says also that the Dharma is joyful. It's beautiful in the beginning, in the middle and in the end. You know when you start something—a spiritual practice or anything, a new habit—even—and it feels really good at the beginning. Like once you get over that hump of actually doing it, <laughs> you know, maybe you've done it a few days. Like that kind of inspiration comes back, and you're like, "Hell yeah!" You know, and then we continue, and, it, and it's not as easy as it was in the beginning, and we and we go off track and we come back and we go off track and we come back but we find ourselves in the middle of our lives with a little bit more ease because we keep coming back to it so it's beautiful in the middle and it's also beautiful in the end so when we think of balancing these factors you know the word that is put in front of each of the eightfold path factors is the word sama s-a-m-m-a so the first factor is sama in Pali Sanskrit. Sama ditti often translated as right. So sama means right. And diti means view. So the first path factor would be right view. The second is right intention. But Westerners don't do really well with right and wrong. And... If you look at the etymology, the root of the word sama, what it actually means is the same root as the word uh, complete or harmonious. It's actually kind of like a musical term. It's like a term that would be used to harmonize. So the fact of the matter is not that we have a right view or a wrong view, but is our view in harmony with the way things are in actuality? Or is our view being obstructed through... Our biological drives is our view being obstructed by our historical conditioning Uh, our current mood our current emotional state our beliefs our family and societal values uh, through economics and politics and philosophy and the Buddha saying views aren't a problem you can't get rid of them Uh, we have to have views but it's actually to understand that views aren't always accurately representing the complete picture. The view is incomplete. My teacher Dave used to say, if there's one path factor, you're almost never practicing completely right, it's the first. You're, You're not seeing things clearly, entirely, all of the time. So for me, there's some humility around this. Oh, my mind, although it's trying its best to use what it knows to understand the world and to understand myself, it has a very inaccurate picture. And if you don't believe me, do you think your story of yourself is the most accurate? They've done research studies on this. They had people come in and, you know, sitting in a waiting room, they had an artist uh, in a separate room, and they sat together in the waiting room with one person. And then they had that person come in to the artist and describe how they looked. And the artist didn't see them. They were behind a wall. And the artist drew a picture based upon how this person described what they looked like. And then they had all the people in the waiting room come in separately and describe what that person looked like to the artist. And who do you think's picture was the most unflattering? The person that described themselves, right? Our views of of who we think we are or how good we think we're doing or how bad we think we're doing or whatever it may be is just not that accurate a lot of the times. And our views are really powerful, actually, because they inform how we think and speak and act in the world. In some ways, they're kind of the cornerstone of everything we do. You know, I may not go out into social settings because I feel like people don't like me or I feel like I'm awkward because I have beliefs about myself. And then I don't actually get to have the experience of connecting and melting away some of those views. So this is a basic way to talk about view in this word sama is that it's not saying that there's a right view and a wrong view. It's it's saying that we want to actually have balance in our view, and we want to try to see a, a whole way of balancing. So if we're going to go into wise view, to, to talk about this a little bit, I spoke kind of generally about view in terms of our perception and how we perceive ourselves. But under this category, the Buddha really talks about two views, which I'll talk more about next time. But it's what's called the, the mundane view and the super mundane view. Or they call this in Tibetan Buddhism, the ultimate truth and the relative truth. And the ultimate truth, you know, this is a topic that you could probably, this is pretty much something you could talk about every day for years. Um, but I think what I would say now is that the ultimate view is that of the Four Noble Truths that life has an inherent level of vulnerability and we can't escape that, actually. That no matter how much we try to make sure that this world doesn't suffer, that it will and that we should still try. And that's the balancing of the relative view. The relative view is that through our Skillful actions, kindness, compassion, generosity, forgiveness, equanimity. We can engage with the world in a loving way. And although the world will continue to be impermanent and pervaded by it, um, we can liberate our own hearts and minds and be there in support of other people to do the work themselves, to liberate their hearts and minds from the unnecessary level of suffering. And there's some level of aging, sickness, death, separation that will always be inevitable here, right? We're not going to get out of that. Even after the Buddha was quote-unquote enlightened, he still died. Food poisoning. So his body is still a human body. And that's the ultimate truth, you know? Um, I appreciate that about Buddhism. You know They, they don't try to you, know, I think that there's definitely some metaphysical elements of some traditions, and I don't want to dismiss that, but I think it's very clear that the Buddha wasn't interested in those conversations. I think he was more interested in helping to normalize and validate. Have you noticed how hard it is? to grow older and to become ill and to die and to be separated from people you love and to sometimes not get what you want and to sometimes get what you don't want and that all you can do is be responsible for your part. You can meet it with kindness and compassion. You can try to be skillful and cause less harm. And in doing so, that you yourself can wake up. And yes, I believe, you don't have to believe this, that you can completely wake up. That your mind can be free from the bondage of unnecessary suffering. But you'll still die. So, But dying will be nature. It won't be a problem. And I don't think it was a problem for the Buddha. There won't be fear and attachment. There won't be craving and reactivity. That sounds pretty good to me. And I'm not there yet. I have no clue where I'm at on that path. You know, I always joke with people and said, I just in this lifetime made it out of the hungry gro- g- ghost realm and made it into the human realm. The hungry ghost is the realm of addiction. And it's one step underneath the human realm in Tibetan cosmology. So, so I think I'm doing pretty good if I'm just like trying to be a decent human for the most part. So these are some of the views that we'll talk about. And then intention is really important. Some of us may have heard this phrase, the roadway to hell is paved with good intentions. Which is made in reference to how we often start something with a good intention, but we don't follow through with it. Um, but in Buddhism, that's not true. Intentions actually the anchor of our practice. You know, It's what we're always coming back to. We don't do our intentions perfectly, but we continue to come back. And there are three intentions that we want to focus on. The first is the intention towards renunciation, which is the intention of trying to live more simply because the mind constantly thinks that more is better and more things, if everything is impermanent, the more you have, the more unsatisfactoriness you have. It's just kind of mathematical at that point. So living more simply, not just materially, but living more simply in our speech Living more simply, uh, you know, in moderation of what we consume. I'm not talking about putting rules or restrictions on what you eat, but being interested around our consumption, consumption of intoxicants. These are things that we'll talk about once we get into Sila next, the ethics. But renunciation is an is a intention. We want to come back to it and practice with it. The second intention is harmlessness or compassion. No one in here, in this room right now, is free from going through a hard time. Everyone in here has suffered and may very well be suffering in this moment. Everyone. And this is one of the gifts I feel like I've gotten through this practice, you know, is that as any, even as I've pursued a profession as a therapist, is that everyone suffers. And... Uh, rather than ridiculing, rather than making it worse, rather than judging, isolating, ostracizing, kicking aside these people. Sure, we can have boundaries because that's self-compassion. We've got to balance that. <laughs> but uh, we can let someone into our heart without letting them into our home sometimes. And I think what the Buddha is saying is actually quite radical. He's saying everyone gets to come in the heart. Not everyone gets to come in your home. That's okay. But everyone has to come in the heart. Because everyone's having a hard time, some of the time. And so compassion is an intention we live with and we live by. And and so same with the last, which is um, kindness, metta, loving kindness. And then we get into the... Ethical factors, this is called sila. If you look at the triangle on the left, I know this is a bit confusing because now we have a circle and a triangle. But the triangle is actually to look at where the Buddha said to kind of start your practice. And he says the the base, even though view is at the beginning and view is also the fruition, it's the beginning and the end of the circle. He says that where you should really start, the, the weight of your practice should be on ethics. And uh, one of my first teachers, I know Don um, has spent quite a bit of time with George Haas as well, uh, but I would sit retreat with him. And one of the things he would say that I loved is he said, um, he said, orienting yourself to Buddhist ethics is like just making a decision that you want to be a good person. And I really love that because even though we get really fixated on good and bad or right or wrong and there's a lot of shame around morality, quote-unquote, in religions, and I don't like the word morality, um, I think that we actually all have a sense of wanting to be a good person. And sometimes some people can do this better than others, for sure. Yeah, But I think that all of us have some sense of wanting that. And that's where the Buddha said to really cultivate and develop the foundation of your practice in these three factors, speech, action, and livelihood. So these three are included in sila. I like to think of ethics, and we'll talk about this later down the road, as uh, living with integrity. And only I can be the gatekeeper to my own integrity. So there's not going to be a book that tells me these things are right and these things are wrong. There's only ever going to be infinite experiences and opportunities to investigate whether I'm living in my integrity or not in that moment. And I'm the only one that can know that or try that. And guess what? I'm not going to always get it right. And what's important in Buddhism is that what gets cultivated is your intention. Even though your intention may not be the impact, We can make amends. We can own responsibility. We can try our best to keep moving forward in our integrity. And so long as we're trying, that's the most important thing because in the kind of basis of Buddhist psychology, that's the thing that gets amplified and practiced and builds momentum is your intention behind your actions. So it's not about being perfect or getting it right. It's about being intentional about are you living in line with your values and are your values promoting your welfare and happiness and the welfare and happiness of others? And my answer right now would be, yeah, not entirely. That's usually most of my answer, but am I willing to look deeper and say, why not, Andrew? You know, Ajahn Chah used to say, if you want a little freedom, let go a little bit. He said, if you want a lot of freedom, let go a lot. If you want complete freedom, let go completely. And we all go through these phases with our, our life, right? When you're making changes, it's like, yeah, I want the benefit of that change, but I don't really want to do it. And actually, the Buddha says that that struggle is a good thing. He says we all go through that, like I want the freedom, but I don't want to do, I don't want to let go of this thing because we think the thing still serves us. But if we really investigate, it doesn't. And despite knowing all of this for 10, 12 years, whatever, however long I've been here, I still do it. So this is lifelong, but it's the foundation. And then we come into the factors of the path, effort, mindfulness, concentration, that Westerners like to focus on. This is kind of where Buddhism gets its appeal in at least, uh, I'll say, the, in North America. Is that through the vehicle of meditation? But uh, mindfulness is not complete mindfulness, sama sati, without ethics. You know, mindfulness is actually anchored in ethics, in living in integrity. You can train a sniper to be mindful, uh, to watch their breath, to steady themselves. You can train a high powered executive. I'm not saying these people are bad. I'm saying that these professions and what they're aimed to do may not be what we're trying to do in some ways. You can train someone, you know, an executive or whatever, to be mindful and to calm their breath and to steady their mind. But uh, what are they using that for? So what we're using it for and towards, again, there's no judgment, but that's got to be a curiosity of ours. So mindfulness is really, the Buddha calls it, the direct path. Um, It's very central to his teaching and to our practice here. So what we talked about today is we talked about where this path leads us. You know, underneath the conditioning, the reactivity, you know, there's the luminous heart and mind. There's our essential nature, maybe our Buddha nature. We talked about balance. and We talked about the Eightfold Path a little bit today. I just want to read a quote by Dalai Lama, and then we'll kind of jump into it for a few minutes. He says, "No matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy is speaking to Westerners in your country is spent developing the mind instead of the heart. Develop the heart. Be compassionate, not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate." Work for peace in your heart and in the world. And I say again, never give up. No matter what is happening, no matter what is going on around you, never give up.